0: Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Michelle Van Kuyken from the University of California, San Francisco, talking about genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Van Kuyken, and I'm an assistant professor of urology at UCSF. Um, and I'm talking today about the genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So why did I choose to talk about this today? So we know that the genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM as I'll refer to it in this talk um, is an extremely common condition affecting approximately 50% of postmenopausal women. It can lead to many lower urinary tract issues and sexual dysfunction And it's my belief that as urologists, we really own lower urinary tract dysfunction um, as well as sexual dysfunction. And so it's important for us to be able to understand, address and treat this condition in women who present with GSM. So the goals of this talk are to become familiar with the presentation and diagnosis of genitourinary syndrome of menopause, to understand what role the genitourinary syndrome of menopause plays in many common lower urinary tract disorders in women. And to be comfortable with the treatment of genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And finally, become really comfortable and familiar with the prescribing of vaginal estrogen. And today we'll discuss both the safety and its efficacy. So in terms of the terminology and definitions, um, genitourinary syndrome of menopause used to be known as vulvovaginal atrophy. And it's often still called this. Um, however, there was a committee meeting um, by the International Society of Sexual Health and Women and the North American Menopause Society where they decided to redefine this term. It's no longer known as vulvovaginal atrophy, but they came up with the terminology genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And the reason why this was done is that the term genitourinary syndrome of menopause really better encapsulates. All of the different um, signs and symptoms that postmenopausal women or women with low estrogen states may experience. So, this new definition of uh, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM, is a collection of symptoms and signs associated with a decrease in estrogen or other sex steroids, involving changes to the labia minora and majora, clitoris, vestibule and introitus, vagina, and importantly for us, urethra and bladder. So uh, there are many symptoms of genitourinary syndrome of menopause and they can fall into any one of these three tiers. So the first are the common we think of when we think of vaginal atrophy or the genital symptoms which are dryness, burning and irritation. Women may also experience sexual side effects of genitourinary syndrome of menopause which include lack of lubrication, discomfort or pain with sexual activity and impaired sexual function. And finally, there's the urinary symptoms, which can include urgency, frequency, dysuria, or burning with urination, microscopic hematuria, and recurrent urinary tract infections. So as you can see, this new definition really um, encompasses many different um, symptoms that patients may experience. So the pathophysiology of genitourinary syndrome of menopause mainly includes the decrease in circulating estrogen and sex steroids. This causes many changes um, to the lower um, genitourinary tract, including decreases in uh, blood flow to the tissues. There are changes in the collagen to smooth muscle ratios. And all of this results in thinning of the um, vaginal lining and with decrease in elasticity and dryness. There's decreased glycogen production with a resultant increase in vaginal pH and alterations in the the vaginal microbiome. And a lot of these different factors um, play into one another and lead to this state of again, vaginal dryness with decreased elasticity, um, increased friability of the tissue, um, shortening of the vaginal canal. So menopause is the most common um, reason why women can experience a low estrogen state, but there are others to be aware of. Uh, So natural menopause, there's also surgical menopause. So being aware if your patient has um, undergone an early menopause due to having a bilateral oophorectomy. Um, There's primary and ovarian insufficiency or other ovarian failure. Um, Many women who are postpartum and breastfeeding are in a low estrogen state. And some of these women who breastfeed um, for a prolonged period of time, can definitely experience vaginal dryness and other urinary symptoms that can be related to this decrease in circulating estrogens. Um, Anti-estrogenic medications, um, so for patients who are being treated um, for various um, estrogen sensitive cancers, um, as well as um, other estrogen sensitive conditions. There's also hypothalamic and pituitary disorders. Then there's also the question of oral contraceptive um, pills that are very common and taken by many women. And there's definitely um, a small subset of women who are on these medications for a chronic and long period of time that can experience some um, menopausal like changes um, to the vulvovaginal area. So just something to be aware of. So what are the signs of genitourinary syndrome of menopause on exam? You may see things like tissue power, sparse pubic hair, a loss of labial fullness. There may be labial agglutination, which is where you get the labia minora and labia majora um, fused together. You get loss of vaginal rugations and narrowing of the introitus and sometimes even some shortening. And you can also see urethral caruncle. There are some factors that can actually exacerbate um, the signs of GSM. Um, and it can be the duration of the hypoestrogenic state. Um, Women who are nulliparous often have more severe uh, GSM changes on exam. Previous vaginal surgery can cause additional shortening and scarring of the vaginal canal. Sexual abstinence, um, women who remain sexually active, some of the um, prolonged friction against the, the mucosa can be beneficial in maintaining some of that elasticity. And cigarette smoking. Um, So these are all things that can um, exacerbate um, this hypoestrogenic state. So here's a couple of pictures that are examples of physical exam. Um, And here you can see, um, and the picture on the left, um, you see a significant narrowing of the introitus. You see this pallor around the urethra. Um, You see labial agglutination in both pictures. You see sort of loss of that definition between the labia majora and the labia minora. Um, And so this is sort of a classic appearance of what you might see on exam. Something that's not um, consistent with genitourinary syndrome of menopause are these more severe changes that you may see in women. So anytime you see things like white plaques or significant areas of excoriation or sort of pronounced erythema. Um, if the changes are really, you know, more severe um, where you get, you know, that really severe labial agglutination and fusion, complete loss of clitoral architecture and phimosis. Um, this is not always consistent with classic genital urinary syndrome of menopause um, and is often more consistent with lichen sclerosis. Um, in these patients, um, biopsy is recommended for diagnosis. Um, and the treatment usually involves steroids. And these patients all often involve um, either my gynecologic or uh, dermatology colleagues, depending on you know, which individual at your institution specializes in these conditions. So what about genitourinary syndrome of menopause in the lower urinary tract? So these women can experience symptoms of overactive bladder such as frequency, urgency, and nocturia. These women will often commonly complain of dysuria or burning with urination. They may suffer from recurrent urinary tract infections. They may have urethral caruncles that may or may not be symptomatic. And microscopic hematuria is often a common finding in women with genitourinary syndrome of menopause on voided specimens. So why is it that we see such profound changes in symptoms um, in the lower urinary tract? Well, it's because the female genital and lower urinary tracts share a common embryologic origin in the urogenital sinus. It's been shown that there are estrogen, progesterone and other sex steroid receptors that are present in the urethra, bladder and pelvic floor musculature. So it would make sense that the absence of estrogen and other sex steroids would impact the urethra, bladder and pelvic floor musculature, as well as their sensation and function. And we do know that overactive bladder becomes increasingly common as women age. So the prevalence of overactive bladder in the United States is about 16.9%, but increases dramatically to about 31% in women over the age of 65. And about 70% of all women who initially present with lower urinary tract symptoms, initially report developing these symptoms after their last menstrual period. And there is some evidence to support that there are changes in the sensory pathways in the postmenopausal bladder that lead to this um, kind of sensory overactive bladder, that urgency frequency nocturia that women experience. Other hypotheses involve changes to the myogenic function of the detrusor and changes to the urethelium that may also be impacted by the lack of estrogen. Another common condition we see in these women is recurrent urinary tract infections. So some of the pathophysiology may involve changes and alterations in the urinary microbiome. Um, as we know, there is sort of a loss of um, lactobacillus, which leads to decrease um, glycogen production and alterations in the pH. This causes different bacteria to then flourish um, in, the, in the new vaginal microbiome that may increase susceptibility to infection. We also know that certain organisms such as lactobacillus crispatus have bactericidal properties against E. coli and decreased levels of these organisms in postmenopausal women may also contribute to the increased susceptibility to infection. As we discussed earlier, there's also an overall decrease in tissue perfusion. So you see thinner tissues that have less of a mucosal barrier to fight off infection, but there's also decreased delivery of immune modulators. So for all of these reasons, these women are increased susceptibility to urinary tract infection. We also discussed urethral caruncle, um, which, as you can see in this picture here on the right, is a benign outpouching of the most distal aspect of the posterior urethra. It is generally asymptomatic, but it can occasionally bleed and cause discomfort um, in some women. The pathophysiology is not entirely unclear, but it is believed to be due to the hypoestrogenic state. And for women that have symptomatic urethral caruncles, the treatment is vaginal estrogen. However, if you see these on exam and the women report no symptoms, there's no reason that it needs to be um, addressed or treated. So in summary, the diagnosis of genitourinary syndrome of menopause is a clinical diagnosis that's made on the constellation of the genital, sexual, and urinary symptoms and exam findings. In order to make the diagnosis, really no other Um, further testing or workup is required. As long as women complain of these symptoms and have evidence on an exam, they merit treatment. So what is our treatment for genitourinary syndrome of menopause? It falls into sort of two broad categories. So one is the non-hormonal therapies, the other being hormonal therapies where we replace the lost estrogen or other uh, lost sex steroids. So we'll first talk about non-hormonal therapies. So vaginal lubricants and moisturizers are um, great and can be recommended to really any woman with symptomatic genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So they can improve vaginal dryness and tissue elasticity. Um, they reduce vaginal itching, itching, irritation, and dyspareunia. So the difference between moisturizers and lubricants are that moisturizers can be used regularly. So this is something you know a woman would use either daily or a few times a week. For lubricants are more often indicated um, for sexual activity or, you know, during an event where a woman might need increased lubrication of the, um, the vulvar vaginal area, and these can be considered first line therapy um, for women with mild symptoms. The pros of these um, treatments is that they're non hormonal and they're available over the counter. The cons are that there are many products on the market um, and there's not one that's been shown to be superior to the other. And they really don't address the underlying um, pathophysiology of genitourinary syndrome of menopause. They're just helping to treat the symptoms. Most importantly, they really don't address the urinary symptoms that women may be experiencing. So In terms of vaginal moisturizers, there really are um, multiple different products that are available on the market. Some can be purchased over-the-counter at your local drugstore, such as Replens. Um, Many of these other ones um, that are commonly recommended, um, Creme de la Femme, New Eve, um, Jolva, all of these are available um, online. Some are available via Amazon, but there is a varying cost and price point between some of these different formulations. Um, For women where they find that these creams are either hard to obtain or too expensive, you can also recommend food grade oils. So it is safe to apply things like coconut, olive and vegetable oil um, to the vulvar tissues um, to help um, improve moisture. So another non-hormonal therapy is the vaginal CO2 laser. So this is something that's um, widely um, being promoted in a variety of different practices. And a lot of it is because um, you know it's a highly profitable enterprise. Um, but the safety, efficacy, and costs, benefits of this particular treatment to date are still inadequately studied. Um, there is some data that shows that it is helpful for the potential benefit of vulvovaginal atrophy. However, there are a lot of um, different clinics that will promote, promote it for various uses, um, such as prevention of recurrent urinary tract infections, help with urgency, frequency, and stress incontinence. And while that potentially could be true. Um, there isn't data to support those claims. We also have no data on long-term outcomes. So women who have undergone vaginal laser therapy, you know, what are they going to look like in five, 10 years? We don't have um, outcomes. And to date, the, the therapy is still not FDA approved. And so whenever you offer this to patients, they do have to uh, cover the cost entirely out of pocket. And even at some of the more reasonable practices that offer um, vaginal CO2 laser, it can cost up to $2,400 for the recommended series of three treatments. So this can be very cost prohibitive for many patients. There is some good data showing that it is helpful for women who um, absolutely cannot use vaginal estrogen, um, but we're still waiting for more you know, long-term data and as well as other outcomes. So the mainstay of treatment of genitourinary syndrome of menopause are the topical um, hormonal therapies. Um, So this is essentially vaginal estrogen. um, And there are various formulations on the market of vaginal estrogen. And the data would say that all of these formulations are equally as effective. So over here on uh, the far left, we have our vaginal estrogen cream. Essentially, it usually comes with an applicator, but I'll often tell women that they don't need to use it. A little bit more on that in the next slide. There's also the vaginal inserts or suppositories, um, which can be a little bit less cumbersome and less messy for women to use. However, this is inserted a little bit deeper into the vagina. And finally, um, there's the S string or the vaginal ring. Um, this particular ring, um, just, uh, secretes the hormone, um, locally into the vulvar vaginal tissues and can be a particularly nice option for older women, um, or women who aren't able to apply you know, a cream or use an insert regularly as this will, um, release a low level of hormone for three months. So these women do need to come into clinic, usually once every three months for the ring to be exchanged. They can theoretically do it on their own, but oftentimes um, they need the assistance. And so this is just a slide showing the recommended um, dosings for various um, treatments. For um, the vaginal cream, whether I'm using, um, you know, the estradiol or conjugated equine estrogen, which is also known as Premarin, um, I'll usually have women use what I, I way I usually recommend it is using a fingertip size amount, um, every night for two weeks at bedtime, and then transitioning uh, to two to three nights a week after that. Um, While the plunger usually comes in the package with the vaginal estrogen cream, a lot of women find this cumbersome. There's concerns about whether or not they feel like they're able to adequately clean it. I just want women to be able to use the product, to use it easily and use it consistently. And using it on the fingertip is oftentimes an easier way to accomplish that. Additionally, it's really helping the the cream to get more on that surface tissue, um, which is usually where they're the most symptomatic. And so that's how I recommend using vaginal estrogen creams. But sometimes you'll find that regardless of which uh, vaginal estrogen product you want to prescribe, insurance um, can get in the way. Um, I also have had good experience in patients using um, both the ring and the vaginal tablet. Um, When it comes to the tablet or suppository, I also recommend um, using it every night for two weeks and then transitioning to two nights a week um, to kind of get a nice loading dose period um, to really help saturate the tissue with estrogen and then lowering the dose after that. So what are the benefits of vaginal estrogen? So there's really low systemic absorption. And because the systemic absorption is so low, there really is a low side effect profile. I've had, you know, very few patients ever complain of local discomfort with vaginal estrogen. Occasionally some women will have burning with application or they may be allergic to one of the components of the vaginal estrogen cream, but this is really uncommon. Rarely women will complain of breast tenderness or vaginal bleeding or spotting um, once they start using vaginal estrogen. If a woman does complain of vaginal bleeding or spotting with the use of vaginal estrogen, um, I recommend getting a transvaginal ultrasound to evaluate the endometrium. Um, is this, is not an expected side effect um, and should be worked up further? Because the systemic absorption is so low, there is no need for an opposing progestin. So unlike systemic estrogen, there's no reason, um, the effect on the endometrium is quite minimal. So there is no reason that a progestin needs to be given as well. And it can be used in patients who are on systemic estrogen therapy. For many women who have been on um, systemic estrogen, um, they may still notice that they have significant um, symptoms from genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Um, For reasons that are not quite as well understood, um, those estrogen, systemic estrogen preparations don't seem to impact the vulvovaginal tissues um, nearly as much as topical estrogen. So these women can safely be on both if necessary. And most patients will notice a response um, to their treatment within a few weeks. So what are some of the barriers to vaginal estrogen use? Well, probably the one I see most commonly in my practice is the high cost of vaginal estrogen preparations. For whatever reason, um, as many benefits as they provide to women, insurances often don't wanna cover vaginal estrogen. And as I mentioned, sometimes which formula or preparation I recommend to patients is entirely dependent on what their insurance will cover. Even in some women where vaginal estrogen is covered by their insurance, there's oftentimes a high copay associated with this medication, sometimes well over $100, which can be entirely cost prohibitive for these patients. Some ways that I get around this are by using... um, some of the new online coupon companies such as GoodRx, um, where women can sometimes get a tube of estrogen cream for around $70, um, and this can last them a few months. So if you're struggling with insurance issues, there are some of these um, online um, purveyors now that can make medications more cost-effective for patients. There's also patient-related factors make it challenging to use vaginal estrogen. Some some women don't understand the proper application. Some dislike the application method. They may not remember how to use it. There's oftentimes sort of a poor health literacy. And if you don't explain to women why you're giving them vaginal estrogen and what the benefits may be, patients may be more disinclined to use it. And many patients, um, they get their vaginal estrogen product, they're willing to use it, and then they go home and they read um, the package insert, which is full of many warnings that don't don't apply to vaginal estrogen. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. So some women will say that they were all set and primed to use it. They read the warnings and then they became afraid. So it's important to counsel them to, to ignore some of those warnings. So this is um, what uh, a screenshot of an actual label that comes inside of a tube of estradiol vaginal cream. So if you look here, you can see that it tells patients many things. So using estrogen alone can increase their risk of getting uterine cancer. Um, It can increase their risk of heart attacks, heart disease, strokes, or dementia. Um, Again, strokes or blood clots, um, dementia. It increases, again, heart attacks, strokes, breast cancer, blood clots. Um, So, people are, you know, patients are naturally very worried about this when they read this um, insert. So, let's talk a little bit more about why um, this warning really shouldn't be on these labels. So again, we kind of went through, according to the package insert, it says women shouldn't use it if they have abnormal vaginal bleeding, if they've had certain cancers, including breast and uterus, if they've had a stroke or heart attack, currently have or had blood clots, currently have or had liver problems, bleeding disorders, allergic reaction, are pregnant, etc. So there's many reasons why women may think that they're not good candidates for using vaginal estrogen. So let's talk a little bit more about these. So... Um, First, we're going to talk about breast cancers and uterus cancers. So there's actually been a lot of research in the area of the effects of vaginal estrogen and the risk of breast cancer, both in developing breast cancer and the risk of having recurrent breast cancer in breast cancer survivors. So uh, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists or ACOG um, came out with a committee opinion in March of 2016 titled The Use of Vaginal Estrogen in Women with a History of Estrogen-Dependent Breast Cancer. And essentially what their committee opinion um, concluded was that the data does not demonstrate an increased risk of cancer recurrence in women with a history of estrogen-positive breast cancer who use vaginal estrogen. If you can, they say that, you know, you could use a non-hormonal approach as first line Um, and you can use vaginal estrogen in women who are unresponsive to non-hormonal therapies. Importantly, you should always, you know, go through an informed consent with patients, um, you know, when deciding to use a vaginal estrogen preparation. And in women who are undergoing active treatment or who are particularly concerned, I will have them consult, um, you know, with their oncologist. And usually the response I get is that it's, um, most oncologists do think that it's safe and they agree with this opinion. Um, They usually will just recommend avoiding the loading dose to make sure that the systemic levels of estrogen stay low. So what about in regards to other um, female malignancies such as uterine, cervical and ovarian carcinoma? So this paper just came out about a year ago Um, And they looked at women with a history of endometrial, ovarian and cervical cancers. All of these women had no um, active disease and were not undergoing um, active cancer treatments at the time. And they were followed for a median of um, 6.7 years using vaginal estrogen. What they found after following these women was that there was no increased risk of recurrence of any of the aforementioned cancers there was no increased risk of any venous thromboembolism or secondary malignancies. So they concluded that vaginal estrogen is safe for gynecologic cancer survivors. Um, So this data is fairly new, um, but it's still helpful for women suffering from genitourinary syndrome of menopause symptoms who may have had these other um, gynecologic malignancies. So there's been other studies that have looked at these other risks that have been posed. Um, So there was a study that came out in 2018 that was a large prospective observational cohort study using data from the Women's Health Initiative observational study. So they looked at 45,000 women at 40 clinical sites. They followed them for nearly eight years in these women using vaginal estrogen. And they again saw there was no increased risk of developing breast, uterine, or colorectal cancer. There was no increased risk of any cardiovascular events, including stroke, uh, myocardial infarction, or venous thromboembolism. And there was no increased risk of all-cause mortality. Um, So basically they found that the risks of cardiovascular disease and cancer were not elevated. And this again, provided safety and reassurance about the treatment using vaginal estrogen. So there's been other studies that have found the same thing. So another um, study that came out in 2019 looking from the nurse's health study um, followed women for a median of 17 years. Again, no increased risk of cardiovascular events including stroke, um, MI or VTE and there was no increased risk of any cancers. Um, and there was another study that came out in 2017, if you um, didn't believe this data, that actually showed that women with vaginal estrogen had a slightly decreased risk of stroke. Um, so overall, we can conclude that vaginal estrogen um, is really safe for women um, with any of the aforementioned conditions, history of cancers, um, and it doesn't increase the risk um, of any cardiovascular or venous thromboembolic events. So again, going back to what vaginal estrogen may do for our genitourinary syndrome of menopause in the lower urinary tract. So there are a few studies that have looked at vaginal estrogen and overactive bladder. Um, Specifically the Cochrane Review um, looked at this um, in 2009, they pulled a number of different studies and showed that vaginal estrogen improved urinary incontinence and there were one to two fewer voids in a 24 hour period. Um, There was also reported improvement in urinary urgency in women with vaginal estrogen use. There's also been a few other randomized controlled trials of vaginal estrogen versus placebo, and they have demonstrated some improvement in overactive bladder symptoms versus placebo, such as frequency, urgency, and urinary incontinence. So what about when we look at vaginal estrogens and anticholinergics, which we know can help with overactive bladder? So this study from Sang et al. um, in 2009, they compared women who were taking tolteridine alone versus tolteridine and vaginal estrogen. And what they found is that the group who took tolteridine with vaginal estrogen demonstrated greater improvement in daytime frequency, voided volume, and quality of life. Another study um, performed a few years later compared estradiol ring use versus oxybutynin, and they showed there was um, a decrease in the number of voids per day with the estradiol ring. However, it wasn't significant, but importantly, they noted that there was a similar improvement in quality of life in both groups, um, showing that oxybutynin um, was not superior to estradiol in terms of symptom relief. What about vaginal estrogen and urodynamic parameters? A few studies have looked at this about 15 years apart, um, and both of them found some interesting findings. Um, so both studies showed that there was an improvement in system capacity. Um, the top study by Simunic showed that they also had a decrease in their strong desire to void, and it actually reduced uninhibited tetruser contractions. The bottom study showed that there was, again an improvement in systematic capacity and in first desire to void. Um, in their study, they didn't see any change in actual detrusor overactivity. So the thought is that estrogen may affect these sensory parameters that help to improve um, systematic capacity along with the desire to void. And this is um, you know what we see in some of these women who are using vaginal estrogen. So finally, what about urinary tract infections? So this very important guideline came out by the American Urologic Association in April 2019, um, and one of the strongest recommendations made throughout the guideline was regarding the use of vaginal estrogen. So they recommended that for any peri- and postmenopausal women experiencing recurrent UTIs, that clinicians should recommend vaginal estrogen therapy to reduce the risk of future UTIs as long as there is no contraindication to estrogen use. And again, here is sort of the the table of that guideline um, showing here that vaginal estrogen therapy is recommended as prophylaxis in peri and postmenopausal women um, who don't have contraindications. And as we discussed earlier, there are very few women that actually have true contraindications to vaginal estrogen use. So finally, again, to provide a summary, um, genitourinary syndrome of menopause is indeed a common clinical entity that has many implications for lower urinary tract health and sexual function in menopausal women or other women that suffer from low estrogen states. And the treatment of choice um, is vaginal estrogen because it not only helps um, with the symptoms, but it helps with the underlying pathophysiologic mechanism that's leading to these symptoms in women. Vaginal estrogen, hopefully um, what we've learned today is that it's safe and effective for the treatment of genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And it really is one of the only evidence-based therapies for prevention of recurrent UTI in postmenopausal women. As we discussed, there's little systemic absorption and therefore the systemic risks are minimal. It can and should be used in women who are already on systemic hormone replacement therapy who have symptomatic genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Unfortunately, fortunately, uh, the data do not show any increased risk of de novo or recurrent breast, uterine, cervical or ovarian cancers in use with vaginal estrogen. And I think all of these points are really important to bring up to women when you're prescribing vaginal estrogen to reassure them um, that the risks are indeed minimal, um, but they're likely to experience significant benefit in their lower urinary tract symptoms with use of vaginal estrogen. And with that, I appreciate your attention today. Um, I hope that you all have learned something and please feel free um, to reach out with any questions in the future. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.